We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him, all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. Good morning. Uh, welcome to Gateway Online. We're really glad to have you. This is the third installment of our series, Navigating Faith. And through this series, we're using the Nicene Creed to organize our thoughts. But as always, we're anchoring our thoughts in the Bible. And we've never really done a series like this, so why the Nicene Creed? If you've been here with us for the last few weeks, you may remember that we're using the Nicene Creed because it's it's a standard declaration of faith for Christians for 17 centuries. It's a simple, straightforward summary of orthodox belief. It outlines the very foundations of our faith, the basics of what we believe. It's not the whole story, but it's the plot summary. And today's topic is the dictionary definition of a big stinking deal. We're continuing with the middle section of the creed, which we began last week, and this stuff is epic. In this section, the authors begin to tackle the questions, who is Jesus and what exactly did he do? Now let's read the next section together. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. Well, before we jump into this section, we need to recognize something profound. Jesus changed the world. I mean, it would literally be difficult to exaggerate his impact. In uh, 1969, President Richard Nixon got carried away with excitement when American astronauts first landed on the moon. And he said, this is the greatest day since creation, until Billy Graham later reminded him of Christmas and Easter. And of course, Graham was right. Look, this ancient Near Eastern rabbi from an obscure part of Galilee who in his lifetime spoke to fewer people then would fill up just one of the many stadia that Billy Graham filled. He changed the world far more than any other person or event. 
I like the way the author Philip Yancey puts it. He said, Jesus introduced a new force field into history and now holds the allegiance of a third of all the people on earth. I mean, this is epic stuff. Wars have been fought over this faith statement. Martyrs by the hundreds of thousands have died for this statement. Consider the privilege we own of being able to casually watch it and repeat it without concern. We're in danger of forgetting how epic, how combustible this stuff is. So at the very least this morning, we need to just ruminate on this creed a bit and marvel. Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to give you a a four-word title for each phrase in this passage as we cover it. Now, this is just a preachery gimmick, but it'll give us an abbreviated sense of what's being said, and, and then we'll see how each phrase is reflected in the Bible, and then at the end, we'll look at what it means for us. So the first phrase, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. And let's call this phrase, dynamic transition, personal and purposeful. Dynamic transition, personal and purposeful. So uh, we were talking about this last week in our staff meeting, and Heather DeJani told a story of a starting point class that she and her husband Jeff led several years ago. Starting point is a class we offer where you can explore faith. If you've got questions or if you're brand new or if you don't buy it, but you're curious, this is a no-holes-barred atmosphere of exploration. Anyway, in the class, they were talking about how Jesus was from the eternity. He was with the Father. All things were made through him. He had no beginning And one of the class participants said, wait, what? Well, that changes everything. I thought he just showed up as a baby and then grew into the Messiah. No, Jesus's ministry here on earth was a dramatic transition. He was sent by the Father from the spiritual realm to the material realm. In uh, Mark 9, 37, Jesus takes a child into his arms and says, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. In Luke 10, 16, Jesus is encouraging his students in their teaching ministry, and he says this, the one who listens to you listens to me, the one who uh, rejects you rejects me, but the one who rejects me actually rejects him who sent me. In John 6, Jesus is asked, what's the work of God? He answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. And the weirdest of all, in John 8, Jesus is involved in a somewhat sophisticated argument with some of the Pharisees about Abraham. To one of his points, the Pharisees respond in utter exasperation, look, you're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham, to which Jesus makes it worse and responds, before Abraham was born, I am. Okay, you didn't mishear that grammar. Jesus not only used the present tense, but This was another one of his subtle allusions to his true identity. You see, the name God gave himself uh, in front of Moses was Yahweh. The literal translation of that word is, I am, or I am what I am. When Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am, well, they took up stones to kill him because of the blasphemy. Jesus experienced a dramatic transition from heaven to earth, from the domain of timelessness to limitation, from spiritual perfection to earthly chaos. He was sent and he came. And this transition was deeply personal. On that same staff call this week, Alex York was commenting on this section of the creed and he said, notice how it doesn't just say for our salvation. It says for us and for our salvation. This is deeply personal. If you were here last week, you may remember the passage we talked about from John 10. 
in which Jesus tips his hand pretty clearly in the direction of his own divinity. He says, I and the Father are one. Again, the Jews around him uh, get it and they pick up stones to kill him, the price of blasphemy. But do you remember the first part of that passage? Jesus said, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. This is personal stuff. And it's very purposeful. Remember, dramatic transition, uh, personal and purposeful. Jesus didn't come to earth to hang out and see what would happen. Repeatedly, he makes it clear that he's on a mission. This is why I came, he says a number of times. And uh, John 10 spells this out a little for us. In John uh, 10, he says, All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I'm the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. Remember that. We'll get back to it later. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. That's very personal and and very purposeful. Uh, In Luke 19.10, Jesus tells an audience, the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. Dramatic transition, personal and purposeful. The next phrase of the creed is, He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. If we gave this a title, I think it would be Unique Combination, Spiritual and Biological. (laughs) Since the late 1800s, well-meaning scholars have been trying to reconstruct the life of Jesus. One of the earliest and most famous of these is a book by Albert Schweitzer called The Quest for the Historical Jesus. There have been many others, perhaps more in the last 30 years than all other years combined. These have been attempts to identify who Jesus was and what really happened to him in ways that are more believable than what we read in the four biographies of the Bible. You know, they they try to separate out the supposed myths and the embellishments from the facts. You won't be surprised to know that this aspect, this unique combination, is often the first thing to hit the edit room floor in these efforts. It's kind of ironic that we find this story, the, the birth of Jesus, very sweet but not really believable. Because the first witnesses don't seem to have had any trouble believing it, but they thought it was decidedly not sweet. In fact, it was scandalous. An unwed, pregnant teenage girl in a small Galilean village in the first century. You wonder why Dr. Luke, who makes sure to tell us in his biography that he examined everything thoroughly that he wrote, he corroborated it all, he checked it all out. You wonder why he believes this story and why he included it. Here's what he says. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. You know, Hallmark cards never portray angels that uh, make us afraid. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great, will be called Son of the Most High God. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. You know, I find it interesting that this, the creed doesn't delete this. 
It doesn't dance around this account. It doesn't soft sell this part of the story. They go right at it. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. And this explains how, for the only time in human history, human personality was combined with divinity. Fully God and fully man. That's what we believe. Side note, uh, if you struggle believing this aspect of the story, I get it. I'm doing a series of short conversations about aspects of the creed and our beliefs that don't have time, we don't have time to cover on Sunday mornings. Uh, two weeks ago, for instance, I talked about evolution versus creation, among other things. These are posted on mygateway.life, and we've called them Navigating Faith Question and Answer Videos. And next week, I'll do several about Jesus. I'm going to cover reasons to believe in the virgin birth, so look for that on mygateway.life uh, late next week. But before we leave this, let's scratch under the surface of this story a bit more. If you know the story, you may be familiar with the horror that was unleashed because of the birth of Jesus. <clears throat> king Herod, Herod, who named himself King of the Jews, was a despicable menace. He was a half-Jew who, who ruled with terrible cruelty over the Jews in the name of Rome. In a fit of jealous rage, after hearing that Jesus had been born in Bethlehem, he killed all of the children under two years of age in the whole region around Bethlehem. He did this just to ensure that this baby didn't make it to adulthood, to make sure that this baby didn't have a chance to create any buzz. And as I said, this is not a sweet story. I mean, let's admit that something profound was happening in this unique life, even from the beginning. You can tell the size of a ship by the wake it leaves, right? Well, if you look at the wake created by the life of Jesus, frankly, it's hard to explain how impactful it is. From his very birth, he creates this epic response. It's hard to explain. Well, unless we believe the creed, unless you believe this is a unique combination, spiritual and biological. Now, the third phrase of the creed is, he was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate, he suffered and was buried. Two years ago, uh, Diane and I had the opportunity to tour Israel. And one of my favorite spots was Caesarea by the Sea. It was a favorite vacation spot in the first century for the occupying force of Romans as well. It's, it's beautifully situated on the Mediterranean. It's in, it's in the warmer part of Israel, so the weather is nice pretty much year-round. There's a large horse racing stadium that reminds you of a scene from Ben-Hur. And there's a large, pretty well-preserved theater. All of that for the entertainment of Roman dignitaries. There's the remains of a palace and a pool right on the Mediterranean Sea, overlooking the sea. There's also a stone monument visible on your way into the site that's covered with carved notes from the first century. These notes include a reference to a notorious Roman governor named Pontius Pilate. It's fascinating that only two human figures make their way into the creed. Mary, Jesus's mother, and Pontius Pilate. Now, Mary, we can understand, but Pilate, no mention of Peter or John, no mention of Joseph. Why Pilate? Well, part of the reason for including Pilate is for dating purposes. In effect, the creed is communicating, this is when these events happen under the reign of Pilate. In other words, these events really happened. We're recounting history. This is not mythology. This is not symbolism. This happened. There was a point in time in history during which God visited the planet and we crucified him. Our title for this section should be Ultimate Sacrifice, Historical and Brutal. This happened. It's history. And very clearly, 
This historical event, event was the ultimate sacrifice. This, the sacrifice part of it, this is the aspect of Jesus' death that comes into clearest focus for the disciples in the aftermath of his resurrection. In other words, this was not the story of Jesus being killed, they realized. This was the story of Jesus laying down his life. He was sacrificing himself for us. In fact, as the disciples would remember, and it would be later recorded for us, Jesus repeatedly told them that this was going to happen. Yep, the biographies include at least three occasions when he predicted his death. Luke 18, 31 through 33, for instance, says this, Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. Again, if we go back to John 10, where Jesus is, is riffing on the shepherd analogy. He said this, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Lays down his life. This was an act of sacrifice. This was not an incidental death. Jesus didn't get caught up in circumstances, wrong place, wrong time kind of thing. He wasn't an, an unfortunate victim of the weird politics of the Roman occupation of Israel. Jesus offered himself. He laid down his life. This was ultimate sacrifice. And the apostle Paul put his finger right on our amazement at this. Uh, he said this in Romans, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, person, someone might possibly die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ultimate sacrifice. But not only do the creed authors acknowledge this ultimate sacrifice, happened in very definite history. They're also intent on communicating the brutality of it. In other words, they do not just tell us he died. In keeping with the authors of the New Testament, they make sure we remember he was crucified. And this was the most ignoble and the most brutal form of death in the ancient world. The Romans were specialists at it, and they reserved it for their most hardened criminals and their enemies. It wasn't only death, but it was horrific death designed to dishearten the opposition. And, and the creed has made this central to our affirmation of faith, as it was central to the faith of the New Testament authors that they communicated. There, there are simply too many references to crucifixion in the New Testament to begin to recount, but, but let's be satisfied with Paul's summary statement. Look, Paul pretty much summarized his whole ministry by telling the Corinthian Christians, for I was resolved to know nothing when I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So why was the brutal crucifixion so central to their understanding and to their faith and ours? I don't know if I fully know the answer to that. I'll explore more of, of what that means in one of the Q&A videos we'll post next week. But for starters, let me suggest one thing about this. I think this is especially important for a more modern audience like this. Think about the versions of Jesus that you hear talked about today. There's hardly anyone who doesn't admire Jesus. There are plenty of people who don't believe in God, plenty who hate the church, but almost everyone admires Jesus. In fact, most people acknowledge that Jesus was the quintessential nice guy. That's kind of how you hear him talked about. But come on, there's got to be more going on here, right? I mean, how would such an awesomely nice guy get himself crucified? How would someone who spends all his time helping underdogs and telling other people to be nice to one another get himself crucified? There's obviously more to this story. The creed ensures that we remember that more. So Jesus experienced a dramatic transformation, personal and purposeful. 
He represented a unique combination, spiritual and biological, and he committed himself to the ultimate sacrifice, historical and brutal. And then the last phrase of this part of the creed says, the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. Uh, let's forget the four-word title here. Let's just call this the greatest event in human history. Jesus is even bigger than the Beatles. He changed the world. So what? I mean, this is super interesting. I mean, especially if it's true, it's incredibly interesting. But at the end of the day, so what? What does all of this say about us? Well, let's start by helicoptering up to the 10,000 foot level. And let's admit that there is something off. Things aren't right. Often things are very wrong, in fact. We experience frustrations and disappointments. There are terrible disasters. There are global pandemics. People get pitted against other people because of their situation in life or the color of their skin. Relationships meant to bring happiness and support provide hurt and loneliness instead. We're not what we imagined we would be. Something is off. Now, these are facts. No one would disagree, but why is this the case? The skeptic, I think, would acknowledge all of this, but would say, you know, it is what it is. But the central contention of Christian faith is that all of this is true because we are at odds with our God. We are at odds with our God. That's true, first of all, at a very personal level. When I'm in a serious conflict with Diane, I get to that conflict because of tendencies in me that are not God-honoring, and I manage that conflict in ways that hurt Diane and me in the long run because of tendencies in me that are not God-honoring. This is also true at a societal level. We build systems that sponsor the mistreatment of others because of tendencies in us collectively that are not God-honoring. We are at odds with our God. Hold on, I'm going somewhere with this. The favorite image for biblical authors to describe all of this, this offness, is salvation. We need to be saved from these tendencies. We need to be rescued from our current way of doing things, of sponsoring things, of responding in certain ways that eventually hurt ourselves and others. We need to be saved from all of that. We need to live in ways that are God-honoring. We need to rightly align with our God. So how does that happen? How do we rightly align with God? How do we rightly relate to God? Last week, we, uh, we talked about how it is that we relate at all. We said that we are designed for relationships because we, we've been created by a God who is a relationship. And this explains so much about us. So how then do we rightly align with God? How do we, how do we get saved from the distance and the dissonance and the tendencies that cause harm? We are literally lost, and I know you felt it. Remember back to the last really bad conflict you had or to the last time when you were deeply disappointed by your circumstances or by a relationship. You were lost. You had no idea how to get back to a better spot. That's what Jesus was talking about when he gave one of his purpose statements. In Luke 19.10, we said it earlier, for the Son of Man, that's Jesus' favorite title for himself, Son of Man. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Remember that John 10 passage we looked at earlier. I am the gate. I'm the entryway. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And let's go back to the encounter recorded in John 14. We looked at it last week. 
This encounter happened, by the way, right after Jesus had predicted his death. Peter stepped up and said, I'll never allow it, Jesus. And Jesus then told Peter that actually he would be a betrayer when all this went down. In this deeply unsettling conversation, Jesus says this, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. And Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus is the key to our relationship with God. Jesus is the means by which and through which we rightly relate to God. He's the way we align our lives with God. Look, we must affirm the truth about who Jesus is and who God is. We must acknowledge the truth about who we are and our need for God. We acknowledge our harmful tendencies, which the Bible calls trespassing or transgression or sin. And finally, we accept his ultimate and brutal sacrifice on our behalf, for us and for our salvation, as the creed puts it. Jesus changed the world, but that's not all. It's more personal than that. It's his intention to change me and you, to save us, to rescue us, to rightly align our lives with God's, to offer us life and life to the full. Dramatic transition, personal and purposeful. Unique combination, spiritual and biological, ultimate sacrifice, historical and brutal, and the greatest event in human history. So let's say uh, the, this passage from the Greed together again in closing. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried the third day. He rose again, according to the scriptures. Listen, affirm the truth that Jesus Christ, about Jesus Christ and God. Acknowledge the truth about ourselves and accept his historical and brutal sacrifice. This is a daily activity for you and I. Each day, aligning our lives with his. But for a few of you, you may have never done this before. You may have never fully acknowledged this. And you may have sensed this morning something different tickling in your heart or in your mind. If that's the case, then today, do this work today with Him. This is how we rightly align our, our lives with God. This is how we deal with the offness. Let's pray together. And during this time, I invite you to pray that to Him. Let's pray. Jesus, we affirm the truth about who you are and about, about God the relationship that is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we acknowledge the truth about ourselves, that, that it's off, that we, we are not what we know we were meant to be, and neither is the world around us. And, and we constantly end up in contention or disappointment because of that. We need you. We need to be saved. We're lost. And this morning... We accept the 
brutal sacrifice that you offered for us and for our salvation that actually happened in history. We accept it. We accept the benefits of that, and we welcome that into our lives as we welcome you. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.